I'm not here to poke holes and suspended disbelief. Anyway, they see some weird shit. They decide to make a baby. Thou Merkin merchant. Who gives a fuck? Oh my god, we're just gonna start calling you Damien Yeltsin's billboards. Well, you know, uh, I really like it here. Uh, it's kind of nice, and uh, it's not as cold as back home, and the soil is a lot better. So yeah, sure, I think we're gonna settle. If I'm a peasant boy who grabs a sword out of a stone, yeah, I'm able to open people up. You will, yeah. Anytime I hit them with it, right? Yeah. So my cleave landing will make me a cavalier. Good day, sir. If Siskel thought it was empty-headed plebeian trash, he was probably <laughs> really good at groove on it. <laughs> because cannibalism and murder. Pull back just a little bit and build walls to keep out the redheads. Authorial intent doesn't exist. Some people stand up and wipe their butts. Some people stay seated and wipe their butts. Like, it just... Connect nerdery to the real world. My name is Ed Blaylock. I'm a world history teacher and sometimes English teacher here in Northern California. And I really don't have anything else I can think of to talk about at the moment. Um, no news is good news. Yeah. Uh, house hunting continues. Um, and yeah, you, you all will hear about that as soon as we've actually closed escrow on something. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so that's, that's pretty much what I have going on. I'm looking forward to hopefully sooner rather than later having a backyard. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about that already. So how about you? Well, I'm Damien Harmony. I'm a Latin and, uh, drama teacher up here in Northern California. Uh, my big news, I guess, is that my neighbors just moved away today. Oh, really? Well, as of this recording, it will have been almost a month ago, but yeah, they, they got a good Mm -hmm. offer. Decided to take it. Uh, okay. They're gonna wait for the market to bottom out again. Uh, right okay. uh, as as you're parked in my driveway to the left. Okay. Um, good folk, good friends. Um, been through a lot together. Uh, used okay. to watch Lost with them. Used to watch okay. True Blood with oh, them. Oh wow. Good All folks. Right. Yeah. So if you're looking for a house right next door to me, okay, it has a backyard. Yeah. Just saying out loud. Yeah. So. Get upside down for a while. Well, the, the market will bottom <laughs> out, and then you can refi. All right. Well, we'll yeah. see what happens. Yeah. So uh, here's here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to tell you what it's about, but I'm going to get things started for you. And, okay. and you may or may not know Suss what's going out. to happen. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Although okay. you're a smart fella, I, I got a feeling you'll okay. figure it out pretty much within the first two sentences. Okay. In 1951, Gary Cooper started a movie called Distant Drums. Okay. Distant Drums was what came to be known as a Florida Western. Okay. All right. I'm going to stop you right before you get any farther. A Florida Western. Yes. Well, it's a Western in theme and approach, but it's set in the Second Seminole War. Okay. 
Okay. It's very specific. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now the That's, second yeah. That that is that is niche history for, mm-hmm. for most of the rest of the United States. Yes. That I mean, unless you are descended from the Seminole mm-hmm. or or you are a Floridian. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, that that's that's an interestingly precise yes. kind of moment. But anyway, carry Although on. if you think about Westerns, they are also interestingly precise because really the time period that all those movies are made of. Oh, is between eighteen seventy and and the yeah. early nineteen. Yeah, it's a it's about a forty year span of time. Not even like it's well, usually eighteen seventy. It's it's usually maybe during Grant. Yeah, but it's usually after Reconstruction ends. Yeah, and before you even get out of the haze. President. Well, maybe maybe a little past haze. Yeah, maybe uh, the the. Uh, the the Arthur presidency. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it's yeah. Set and if you're, there. Yeah. If you're talking about a classic, yeah. classic in quotes, kind of Western, uh, there have been a number of modern Westerns that have stretched the timeline sure. a little bit out later. Sure. You know, as we've moved forward in time. The, yes. The time yeah. No, that's, is, that's absolutely know. true. But like, but the, clo- closure, genre, closure of the frontier is usually a pretty hard. Yeah. Kind of ending to that. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So the second Seminole war lasted from December of 1835 until August of 1842. Uh, interestingly, this spanned four presidencies, from Jackson to Tyler. Oh wow! Well, some of that is because yeah. Harrison died. Harrison, yeah, yeah, so. almost doesn't count as a presidency. Yeah, since you know it lasted, and a yet month. still considered a better president than <laughs> than the one that we just got done. With. Yes, well, because how much damage was he able to do in that period of time? <laughs> yeah, like how much did he corrode democracy? Right. <laughs> Kind of didn't. Yeah. Well, not while he was president. Um, And so it involves some of America's most famous military figures of the time. Such was the difficulty of the fighting against the Seminoles. That's true. They fought a brilliant guerrilla war before mm -hmm. anybody knew what the term guerrilla war really meant. Yeah. Yeah. So here's a list of some of the people that fought. Uh, Francis Dade. Yeah. For whom I assume Dade Dade County County. is named for. Yes. Winfield Scott. Yes. Richard Gentry. Okay. Thomas Jessup. Okay. Zachary Taylor. Yeah. That's on the American side. Now, on the Seminole side, Osceola. Osceola. Osceola? Yeah. Oh, that's right. I'm thinking I blended that with Ocala. Yeah. Which is the place where wrestling happened. Yeah. Um, John Horse. Okay. Uh, Abiaka. Yes. Uh, Mikanopi? Mikanopi? Uh, I want to say Micanopi. Micanopi. Uh, that's probably the Floridian yep. pronunciation. And Coacucci. Yes. Uh, on the Seminole side. Now, ultimately, the U.S. won. We know how that ends. Yeah. Uh, and this particular Seminole war, war, there were actually at least two others, is usually the one that people talk about when they talk about the Seminole War. It's considered to be the longest, the costliest of all the U.S. native conflicts. Yes. And by the end of it, almost all natives in Florida had been moved west with the remaining 300 in the whole state living on reservations. Yes. So anyway, Distant Drums. Yeah. It's set in 1840 when Zachary Taylor, played by the actor who actually played Ferdinand Esterhazy in the 1937 film The Life of Emil Zola, uh, which was the guy who actually did all the spying that Alfred Dreyfus got pinned on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So the guy who played him... Played uh, Zachary Taylor. Anyway, Zachary Taylor is in his final year of being in charge of the war. Right. 
Okay. He sends an army of American Western cowboys and soldiers. So here's this weird blending because the 1840s was not a time where you had Western cowboys and soldiers. Yeah, no, you didn't. Yeah, such no. that, you know. Yeah. Uh, but. Frontier types. Right. And uh, soldiers. Yeah. So, uh, but, you know, it, it's it's cinema in the 50s. So yeah, let's blend so, all the things. Yeah. Uh, but they're led by a Captain Quincy Wyatt, who is played by Gary Cooper. Right. And his okay. sidekicks, Lieutenant Tufts, played by Richard Webb of Star Trek's The Court Martial episode, played Ben Finney. Okay. Um, and Scout Monk, which is played by a guy named Arthur Honeycutt of the Twilight Zone episode, The Hunt, where okay. he's an old man in this one, and he refuses to go to heaven because... The person telling him you can get into heaven said, but dogs aren't but dogs allowed. dogs aren't allowed. I remember that episode. Yep. Yes. Okay. Uh, anyway, they, they get sent by Zachary Taylor on a mission to destroy a Spanish Seminole fortress deep in the jungles of Florida, where an evil Indian army of Seminole warriors of the evil dark side, led by the dark evil chief Ocala, are keeping people prisoner. Okay. This was 1951, after all. Yeah. And and so now you're, you're throwing around dark evil... Do they actually use those words in the script, or is that the shading it's and the, the shading okay, and the coding? Yeah, literally shading and coding. Yes. So, unfortunate question, but I feel like I need to ask it. Sure. Do the natives in the film mm-hmm. wear red face? Some, yeah. Because you're because yeah. you're talking a great deal about you know dark. Yeah. And of course it was the fifties United States. So yes. that's yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Several do. There are some natives who are hired to be on the set uh and, and as extras and things like that. Okay. Um, but by and large it is it's white it is, actors yeah. portraying everybody. Okay. So of course one of the prisoners being held becomes the love interest for Captain Wyatt. Her name is Judy Beckett. She's played by Mary Alden. Uh, Mary Alden okay. was a Lithuanian born actress who had a short and fairly unremarkable career on screen. With this one being perhaps the highlight. Okay. Anyway, they rescue the white folks, they blow up the fort, and they have to go on the run with their fugitives that they've rescued. There's quicksand, alligators, rivers, swamps, etc. Okay. When they get back to Wyatt's home, because he lives there, uh, it's been burned down, probably by the evil Seminoles who've caught up with and overtaken them. Now, luckily, Captain Wyatt challenges the main Seminole antagonist to a mano-a-mano underwater combat. And wouldn't you know it, Chief Ocala, played by the hyper-obscure white actor Larry Carper, whom some actually claimed is an actual seminal, but I've not been able to corroborate that claim, he accepts. Okay. Wyatt stabs and kills him underwater, which frightens the Seminoles into leaving, and Wyatt falls in love with the woman, gives his weapons to Tubbs, and settles down right there. There's also a small Indian child that he lived with, and I don't There's know if it was a ward or a servant. Series of bad decisions going. Okay. Yeah, and the anyway. kid the kid shows up, not missing, as it turns out by the end. Oh, also the sheriff from Bonanza was in this movie. Okay. Now this movie was shot shot largely on location in the Everglades, and it was a hellacious production for the actors and crew. Uh, the director hired two snake experts to clear water mo- moccasins and rattlers from the swamps that they were filming in daily. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Those two men struck a deal that, in addition to their pay, they could keep whatever profit they got from live or dead snakes. This meant selling <laughs> the live snakes to a local fish and game lab yeah. to create anti-venom, yeah. as well as selling dead ones to a cannery to make snake steaks a local delicacy. Yep. Welcome. Welcome to Florida. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Gary Cooper fell up to his waist into quicksand once. 
which I find to be semi-hyperbolic given the public imagination's obsession with quicksand. Yeah, I think it much more likely he fell up to his waist in muck. Yeah. Having, you know, visited the Everglades a number of times. Yeah. Quicksand? Less of a thing than you might think. Yeah. The muck of the Everglades. Yeah. Way more of a thing than you might think. Yeah. I... Also, also, sawgrass is the devil. Yes. Um, just like. And swamp cabbage is gross, y'all. Okay. It just is. All right. But the cameraman almost got eaten by an alligator. You say that like it was only one cameraman almost <laughs> eaten like an alligator. And I feel like, yeah. I feel like that's a small miracle. Yeah. <laughs> like. Because this was what, what, 50 51. What? Okay, 51. Mm-hmm. They're filming in the Everglades. So my father was seven years old. Yes. Living in Miami. Yep. And the stories I've heard about what Coral Gables mm-hmm. was like mm-hmm. in the 50s, it was like they were living on the edge of the fucking jungle. Now, Coral Gables is the woman who sang All I Want for Christmas is You in the 1930s, right? Amongst other things. Okay, yes. Yeah. Um, Good yes and but but yeah <laughs> yes and uh, but uh, you know based on based on what I remember mm-hmm. my father's neighborhood looking like thirty years after that when I was a kid yeah and then thinking about what the Everglades which was actually the wilderness yes had to be like during that time period how is it that only one of them nearly <laughs> got eaten. I mean, well, and then, you had the two guys about, scaring like, out the snakes. Well, yeah. So. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They're they're doing they're doing truly yeoman work. Then. <laughs> yes. Dear God. Speaking of yeoman, Gary Cooper was quoted as saying that he'd quote given a gallon of his best blood to the mosquitoes and leeches. Oh well, yeah. 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 But Gary Cooper loved making the this mosquitoes film. Mosquitoes would be the size of your. Oh yeah. Man. Yeah. God. What what got me about living in Florida was the gnats. Everything else I was cool with, but the gnats would fly up your nose and in your eye. Oh yeah, and and they would buzz. Oh like God. gnats, and they would buzz in clouds. And oh yeah, it was awful. Drive me nuts. Yeah, no, yeah. it was it was totally the mosquitoes for me. Uh, uh because I didn't I didn't ever actually stay in Florida long enough to acclimate to uh, like you're surrounded yeah. by mosquitoes all the time. So I was always coming from Southern California, sure, which is a desert. Yep, basically yep, yep. to to Florida, right, which is the antithesis of that <laughs> like like it's, it's same hot. latitude same same enough. latitude yeah. but like the humidity level is now no we're gonna crank it all the way to 11 yeah and and no there are mosquitoes everywhere oh yeah and then there's you know and they're in the summer, again the size of your hand mm-hmm. and in the summer you, you know, had love bugs which would fuck while flying and your windshield would just be would covered just be in covered. orange. Yeah. yeah. I, I heard about I never That might have been further that. up the shaft. That was further north. Yeah. That was yeah, that, that was up that was up near the the Taint. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. closer to that. Yeah. I, I would be down near the frenulum. But yeah. you know. Uh or the top anyway. Uh, the foreskin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Um the mosquitoes were were oh yeah terrifying yeah. to me. Uh but yeah. where you lived, so, I mean Maybe not by the time you were in the world, but historically in San Diego, the big problem with San Diego was the fleas. Parts of San Diego. Well, like historically, though, yeah, like yeah, yeah. one of the reasons it took Las, so long to Las settle Pulgas it. Yeah. Is is a town yeah. around there because, yes. Yeah. Yeah. But there was wonderful uh, writings that I read from uh, Sunset Magazine. 
mm-hmm. um, and just uh, hilarious takes on here's how you can fight off the fleas. And it was oh, yeah. basically cake your body in mud. And it was Pretty much. satirical, but yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's why it took San Diego a while longer than L.A. Like, yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. But anyway, so Cooper loved making the film. Uh, his stuntman largely just got to watch because Gary Cooper was doing as many of his own stunts as he could. Really? Yeah. And and I read the review, and it was reviewed with fairly placid praise, finding neither fault nor innovation with the movie. It was a steady movie yeah. through and through, and it was set... Workman-like. Yeah, and yeah. it was set for the 1951 holiday season audience. Okay. Now, what's most notable about this movie, though, the reason that it sticks in my head so hard, and it's why I figured you would know what I was talking about, uh-huh. is because there's a scene in which the soldiers are wading through the waters waist-high when one of them gets pulled under by an alligator. And as he's falling, he screams and then proceeds to be eaten by several alligators. Now, this scream is actually recorded a little bit later, presumably by Sheb Wooley, who's the guy who wrote and sang Purple People Eater. And it was known for uh, he was known for recording uh, screams really well. Okay, It's not entirely certain it was him, but most of my research and most of the sources that I read pointed to him, including his widow, who was interviewed in 2005. Okay. Now that scream was a stock was saved as a stock scream, and actually it was one of six stock screams that were saved, and they were spread throughout the film. Six short pain screams were recorded in a single take, which was slated as quote "man getting bit by alligator and he screams." The fifth scream recording was used for the soldier with the alligator, but the fourth, fifth, and sixth ones recorded in the session were also used earlier in the film when three Indians get shot, one after the other, during a raid on a fort. Okay. And although the signature or the classic screams uh, take four through six on the original recording, uh, they are the most uh, recognizable, one of which was used in 1953's 3D Marvel as the New York Times reviewed it uh, very favorably because most of all the 3D gimmicks of all the things coming at the audience, uh-huh. but also because of the fast pace that it undertook to tell the tale, charge at Feather River. The oh, okay. S- the scream is used three times and at least once in conjunction with a character named Private Wilhelm who took an arrow to the knee. Okay, to the thigh. To the, yeah, but I was still yeah, okay. Thus was brought yeah. into being the famed Wilhelm scream. Okay, so 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 you're telling me yes that all of that <laughs> it along, is along with the sidebars. I about, have a you know this guy played in this film yes. about Emil Zola. Yes, like all okay. <laughs> so okay, now I had known. Uh huh. What I what I remember knowing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. prior to all of that was that the Wilhelm scream was a stock scream. Yep. And I knew that it had originally been of a man being eaten by an alligator. Yep. I didn't realize it was from a Gary Cooper flick. Yes. And because it was about a man being eaten by an alligator, I had assumed it mm-hmm. was like a Tarzan adjacent kind of adventure film. Nope. But no, it's a Seminole Western or uh, in Florida, Florida, Florida Western. Western. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So tonight we're talking the history of the Wilhelm scream. Okay. And not just the history, because that would only get me twenty seven hundred words. Yeah. The meaning that it's come to hold in our collective cinematic zeitgeist. Okay. All right. I'm. I think this might be a two parter. You. Have... <laughs> 
because of course <laughs> yeah i have a brand to protect like, what do you like, want yeah, yeah, you know you know <laughs> no this is your side of the street you're working your side yeah, of the street here yeah okay yeah so okay <laughs> all right yeah i'm you have my attention okay all right well, so here's a quick list from drums to star wars because okay. that's when it becomes iconic due to ben burt's efforts specifically Okay. In between distant drums and the charge at Feather River, it was found once in a movie called Springfield Rifle, which is another Western. Okay. okay well, from 51 yeah, okay. to 53. Right. Okay. Then in 1954, you can find it in The Command, a Western. This time a native screamed and when he was shot off a horse. And that was the first time I ever saw it in a movie. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Then for the first time, it was in a sci-fi movie in 1954. Oh, what? Them. <gasps> Wait. Yes. Hold the, on. Hold on. Yeah. Hold on. Is that the one about the ants? The radioactive ants? Yeah. Yes. My mother saw that at a drive-in. Ooh. Yeah. And like kept her awake for, for, for weeks. Because, <laughs> you know, because that was 50 what? 54. Yeah. So she yeah. was nine or 10. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. No, she was not eight or nine. Okay. Yeah. So she wasn't supposed to be there. Right. You know. It was America's version of Godzilla. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah radiation yeah. yeah well pests. there were a whole bunch there was like a there was a whole genre like the japanese had kaiju movies right and we had radioactive bug movies yes because another one that kept my mother awake for weeks after you know <laughs> not having you know kind of kind of semi sneaking into the into the drive-thru with the mm-hmm. family to see it was about um uh potato bugs oh, wow. or, or giant some kind of pincher bug some okay. kind of big pincher bug and there was there was one scene that my mother remembered vividly, you know, forty years after the fact, uh, where where uh, somebody's head got caught ah. between the pinchers and mm-hmm. and squished. Okay, and that that gave her nightmares sure, for weeks sure. afterward. And of course, it's all you know, radioactive, naturally, you know, yeah, you know, because fifties and the Red Scare and oh, know, yeah. nuclear everything. Okay, so so in this movie, it had the scream three times. There was a ship at sea getting attacked by the ants. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Hold on. I'm not. I'm not familiar enough with the film mm-hmm. to 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 know the details here. Mm-hmm. How exactly do radioactive? Admittedly, they're giant. But yes. how do giant radioactive ants attack a vessel at sea? They swarm it. You know, and then pick it from, up, and and from, people fall off it. From from where? From the water. I mean, they're radioactive. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, a guy gets throttled to death by a giant ant, and a soldier gets hit by falling debris while they're crawling through a sewer. Okay, and now are are they using? Because you talked mm-hmm. about you know uh, takes, mm-hmm. you know one through six. They typically go from takes four, five, and six. Those are the most pure, most frequently used. Stock okay, screams. okay, and and so it's not the exact. It's not like number five getting right, used every right. single time. I didn't go that deep. Okay, all, which all right. I know is surprising. Um, I'm a little but... disappointed. <laughs> not gonna lie. Yeah, uh, you have a brand to protect after <laughs> all. True. Uh, oh God, now I kind of want to sing Mambo Number Five, <laughs> but with Wilhelm screams. No. You know, a little bit of Wilhelm on my mind. mind. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So. Okay. So, after that, the very sad Judy Garland and James Mason movie, A Star is Born. Wait. Shows up twice there. How? Well, one, they're watching Charge at Feather River. Oh, that's fucking meta. It is. uh, That happens so meta. And it happens so often. 
Okay. And then there's another one during a rehearsal scene. Uh, and then you fast forward to 1955. Okay. How oh, yeah. is somebody screaming during a rehearsal? I feel like uh, she runs up gone... to someone and someone falls backward. I think it is. Okay. Yeah. Uh, then in 1955, the sea chase with John Wayne and Lana Turner. Okay. Set in World War II. Right. The land of the Pharaohs with Joan Collins when victims are getting thrown to the alligators. Okay. Then in 1956, Helen of Troy with Bridget Bardot. Oh, hey oh, yeah. All right. Uh, talk about typecasting. Um, <laughs> and then nothing. There's a veritable desert until 1960 when Sergeant Rutledge comes out. Now, Sar- Sergeant Rutledge is a Western about a black soldier on trial for raping a white woman. And this starred Woody Strode, who was the same guy who played Straba in Spartacus. Okay. I don't want to be your friend. Yeah. You know, that guy. Yeah. Um, 1963, fast forward, PT-109, which I didn't realize that movie came out the same year that he died. Wow. Yeah. And so Japanese destroyer crashes through the patrol boat. Yeah, and you hear it. Okay. 1966. So we're seeing these three-year gaps because, again, it's a stock screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Harper, starring Paul Paul Newman and uh, Lauren Bacall. Okay. Janet Leigh and Robert Wagner. Oh, wow. Yeah. Is it Lee or Lay? Lee. Lee. Janet uh, Jennifer Lee. Jason Lee. Yeah, Janet Lee. Yeah. Uh, the Wilhelm scream is in that one uh, when Will, when Paul Newman strikes Roy Jensen's character. Okay. Punches him. Uh, 1968, the Green Berets. An enemy soldier gets thrown in the air after a grenade explodes. Uh, okay. Which, this is the first time I see it being done with an explosion accompanying it. Yes. Okay, which becomes yeah. a thing. Yeah. Yeah. 1969, the Wild Bunch. Chisholm, 1970. Also in 1970, a movie called Impasse. Burt Reynolds and a thug fall to the bottom of the stairs in a warehouse fight. And then seconds later, there's a fall from a balcony as well. Oh, wow. So, yeah. All right. I I hope that they did more than number four twice. Yeah, yeah. And then nothing for four years. And then we hear it again in The Scarlet Blade in 1974. Ooh. Okay. Hollywood Boulevard in 1976, and then it gets found by Ben Burt, and from there it takes off. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about Ben Burt and his discovery. Benjamin Pickering Burt Jr. was born in 1948 in Janesville, New York. Okay. Janesville or Jonesville? I'm going to say Jonesville. Okay. Uh, But... This anyway, small town in New York. Now, that's only about 10 minutes down the road from where Rod Serling had been born 23 years earlier. Okay. And there's no other connection. I just thought that was kind of neat. All right. I even went on Google Maps to to double check because it's like, okay. well, if you walk for two hours, I'm like, shit, walking for two hours gets me there? That's like <laughs> 10 miles. Um. Anyway, his parents were a chemistry professor and a child psychologist. Uh, so clearly he had a family that had the means to send him to school and the drive to expect good things from him. And as a child... Ben Burt made his own films and eventually studied physics in college, graduating from Pennsylvania in 1970. Okay. However, he also made films to the point where he made war films that won an award at the National Student Film Festival. He specifically, oh, wow. yeah, he specifically loved aviation films um, and he made a- amateur films at the old Rhinebeck Aerodome in Red Hook, New York. Okay, cool. Uh, which I think it's interesting that he focused on aerial films, considering what George U- Lucas used kind of to storyboard yeah, yeah, dogfight yeah, yeah. scenes, right? Now, because of his work on special effects in a film called Genesis, which I Genesis, which I could find nothing about, um, he got other than that name and that connection. He got mm. a scholarship to USC, 
uh, and he graduated uh, with a master's degree okay. in film production. Now, I couldn't find the year that he graduated from, from film school, but this is the 70s. I don't really know if there was any possibility of overlap with the other auteurs, yeah. but it seems like he was in the same Well, he's, in, he's in the same, same, yeah. you know, melting pot, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're hanging out in the same circles. Right. If he didn't graduate at the same time, he He's was still, he has... was in that environment, Yep. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and because you, you know, you have those connections and, and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, uh, what do you call it? Uh, in 1975, uh, he gets on his first film. Uh, albeit it's uncredited uh, for sound design. Okay. Death Race 2000. Really? Yeah. Okay, cool. Now, the next year, he was a special effects artist for Milpitas Monster. Okay. Which is an indie film. Yeah. Uh, but it's set in Milpitas, which is Southern Bay Area. That's an interesting yeah. kind um, read. Yeah, I read some reviews on it, but it seemed like fanboys writing reviews on, on his student oh, film. So, okay, yeah. But evidently, based on that portfolio, he was hired on by George Lucas, and it was his emphasis on found sound, that was a, a quote that kept coming up, that really helped to make a Flash Gordon threesome with Kurosawa movies and old-timey dogfight film strips into a viable, believable movie set in space. I love your description of Star Wars. Because, <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. So when he was working there as a sound engineer or sound designer, there's a lot of terms, uh, he finds the Wilhelm scream. Um, But in trying to find good sounds and keep them handy for the sound effects for Star Wars, he also went looking to tickle his own memory. Specifically, he found the actual studio reel that had the sound and he made sure to use it. Here's a quote I found of his. Quote, I tracked down an old movie scream I loved as a kid. I called it a Wilhelm after the character in an old Western who got an arrow in his leg and let out that scream. Every time someone died in a Warner Brothers movie, they'd scream this famous scream. That scream gets in every picture I do as a personal signature. So, yeah. W- remember what you said about auteur? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, he's clearly swimming in the same water. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Now, he okay. named the scream after doing a ton of research, and he discovered the actual written records at Warner Brothers from the editor of Distant Drums, including a short list name of names of actors who were scheduled that day to record lines of dialogue for miscellaneous roles. Wow. For drums. Yeah. Okay. I mean he I mean we're talking like thumbs through the files of like old file cabinets that haven't been opened in twenty years. Oh wow. I mean that kind of thing. And this real is, no yeah. kidding historian kind, yeah. of, kind of stuff. Yeah. Awesome. I I love his dedication to finding out that, yeah, you know. Now this is how he came to find out who the most likely voice was, and with the success of Star Wars that we know, Bert got a special recognition by the Academy Awards for sound effects editing because there was no such award yet. You couldn't get an Oscar for yeah, it. so they gave him a special award, right? Okay, uh, well, a special recognition, special recognition. Yeah. Okay. Now after that, his career understandably took right off, right? And yeah. he had steady work every year. He was working on something. Until 1987. Now, 1987 is just the first year that I couldn't find anything that his name was attached to. So I don't know if he, like, you know, really booked 1986 and 1988 or what. 
but uh yeah okay so it, it you know he he's had steady work and it's not like in 87 he's like oh my god what's gonna happen it just there seems to be a gap here there yeah i don't know if he had a kid then or what there's there's scant amounts of stuff online about ben burt He's That's remained kind of a shame. Yeah, he's remained fairly uh I'm not going to say anonymous, but fairly private it seems at least on the internet. Slightly obscure. Yeah. Okay. Um it, I I wonder if there's not a book written about him somewhere, some sort of monograph, okay, yeah. you know. But in many of the films uh that he could, he put that iconic scream into and there are over 400 films that have the Wilhelm scream. So I'm not since Star Wars. Uh, no, total. 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 Okay. I'm not going to list them all, but here's some that surprised me. Uh, 1979's More American Graffiti. Okay. 1989's Always. 1995's A Goofy Movie. Okay. Well, okay. Uh, yeah. Goofy. Okay. The Wilhelm, yeah. The, the Wilhelm scream yeah. and any of Goofy's anything, they're, they're spiritual kid. That is fair. Okay. 13 Days in 2000. Okay. Now, I listed these next three because I find it. Really fun. Spider-Man, 2002. Okay. Star Wars, Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, 2002. Okay. Lord of the Rings, Two Towers, 2002. In 2002, the Wilhelm Scream was in all three of the Holy Trinity of, of properties. Of major properties. Yeah. Did, do you know where in the Two Towers it was used? I assume somebody falling off of one of the towers. Well, okay, yes. <laughs> no, Somewhere. it's probably a rock hitting something and people flying. Could be, you know. Could well. I'm trying to think of what because okay. So two towers is Orthanc, mm-hmm. uh, where Saruman and and all of his all of his Urukai, mm-hmm. uh, you know, suffer defeat at the hands of you know a bunch of walking trees. So it could be that. I'm almost wondering if Peter Jackson. Oh, it's the guy falling off it. the oilifant. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, cradle to the grave. From 2003. <laughs> uh, she, I probably just blew off my levels with that bark laugh. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. She's cool. the man in 2006. Okay. Juno in 2007. And Iron Man in 2010. Okay. All right. Okay. So you know, I, Iron Man. Yeah. Iron Man, I can see. I can, sure. you know. There's explosions galore. Yeah. So, okay. And after a while, it wasn't just Ben Burt. His friend, his friend Richard Anderson... No relation to Richard Dean Anderson. Yeah. Um, took up the charge as well after they'd worked together on Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it was archived at Skywalker Sound, where later on, Gary Rydstrom and Chris Boys would continue its use. Now, between these four men, you have LucasArts, Warner Brothers, Disney, and Pixar smothered and covered in Wilhelm. Okay. Or infused. Phrasing. Okay. Um, but Sorry, okay. I was thinking Waffle House. Okay. <laughs> Still, um, so so here's the question. Sure. So it was originally mm-hmm. the the recording. Yes, was originally used in a Warner Brothers film. Yes. So when Pixar, Lucasfilm, mm-hmm. everybody else, when 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 all these other studios and other folks used it, mm-hmm. what what's the royalties situation for? Yeah, I was wondering that. the same. How like how much ownership? I don't think there was Since there was much because I I think probably because it was in the what do we want to say it wasn't quite the golden years of Hollywood right mm. but the silver years of Hollywood yeah. perhaps 1951 yeah um and I think finding that scream and making your own tape of it 
there there wasn't as much legal eagles like oh okay. this is proprietary yeah the yet. the the, the tight fisted control exactly. of, of intellectual property stock. yeah yeah okay so now Richard Anderson and his company which was called Weddington Productions now it's part of Technicolor Sound Services also archived it so now you've got two groups that have archived it and from there editors like Mark uh, Mangini Mangini David Whitaker Steve Lee and George Simpson also took it and jammed it in elsewhere. Only a few studios actually have the master of the Wilhelm scream. However, you can find it, quote, in the clear, which I looked that up for an hour, and I presume it means that it exists with no other background sound. Yeah. And or you can use it as free use. Yeah. Now, I, I, yeah. I immediately went to you can use it as free use right. without having a credit. But I was thinking yeah. sound guys would be like, yeah. oh, this is one that doesn't have anybody talking over it, right? Now, regardless, directors have often learned of the history of the scream and insisted on using it again uh, more often and louder in their movies. Uh, for instance, Quentin Tarantino, he uh, had it put into Reservoir Dogs in 1992. Okay. And then he learned about the significance of it. Now, he's a huge cinephile. Yeah. And so he called a break from his like editing process and had his entire sound crew and him Go into a nearby room with a small TV to watch distant drums on a local uh, station to hear the scream. Oh, wow. Later, Wilhelm appears in his film Kill Bill Volume 1 in 2003 right. as well. Yeah. Now, while Peter Jackson was told the history of the Wilhelm scream during the sound mixing of The Lord of the Rings Two Towers, he was so excited in, uh, that it was included, uh, he had its volume raised. And he, yeah. And he insisted that it also be used in Return of the King. Yes. Now, the Wilhelm scream has become a trope unto itself. It is its own fourth wall break, and that's what I think is so neat about it. So here you have something that's almost exclusively shows up in action films now. But its yeah. existence in those films pulls you out of those films only for an instant, but it keeps you from taking those films too seriously. And I think that that has to do with a couple of things. Okay. One, the homogenization of the studio system. Yeah. Both uh, during the DVD and broadband era. But also, what do I blame everything on? 9-11? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, okay. Yeah. I I think 9-11 I'm is directly struggling. responsible for the Wilhelm scream showing up in more and more movies. Okay. Because we need the escapism? Yes. We need, okay. We need the wink and the nod. Because okay. if you look at the data, 69, nice, of the Wilhelm Scream movies. <laughs> That's uh, so stupid. But yes. Okay. Uh, but 69 of the Wilhelm Scream movies and TV shows occur before 2000. Okay. Between 2000 and 9 11, it happens 11 times. So it's a total of 80. Okay. This means that of the over 400, the other 320 plus occur after 9-11. And you can't tell me they weren't making more movies before or after, or after. right? Yeah, okay. And right. at last count, only 21 are since 2016. This means that 300 movies and TV shows, the vast majority, occur from 9-11 until the election of Donald Trump. Okay. Now, I yeah. That that is quite a pair of bookends. I'm going to that tell you why. Really... Too. There's a huge shift that happens as a yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
So while 9-11 was terrible, uh, it led us to a behavior that we only really recovered from with the election of a piss baby dictator wannabe. <laughs> Don't sugarcoat it, Damien. What do you really think? <laughs> we needed to be Be taken blunt. A- <laughs> We needed to be taken out of the moment and reminded that action isn't bad. We needed to be given a security blanket during explosions and other such disasters to be reminded that it's a movie so that we don't just re-traumatize ourselves over and over. And we needed that for the entirety of the Bush presidency. And by the time we got to Obama, there was an increased focus on whimsy and continuing to divorce ourselves from the reality in the world around us. Okay. Obama, America's first black president, America's first post-racial president, and a thoroughly classy man who actually understood the seriousness and commitment that his job required, something not seen willingly taken up since Clinton, continued the Bush doctrine and kept going the unending war, even stepping up the drone strikes. Yeah. Now, I always point out he stepped him up because he could. Yeah. That if Bush had access to that kind of technology, he would have used it He'd have done, yeah, no. Yeah. But... I do think that there's a difference in both of these, and I think that different people are using it to escape for the same things. So under Bush, uh, there is a uh, divorcing from reality. Okay. It's willfully Dissociation. Yes. Under Obama, there is a, uh, this isn't my country anymore, divorcing from reality. So you I, think it's different groups of people? I do. And yet they all come together. It's the Wilhelm scream hits that quadrant. Okay, for folks. Now, here's here's why I say for Bush. Bush told us on November twenty seventh, two thousand one, get down to Disney World in Florida, take your families and enjoy life the way we want it to be enjoyed. And we've got a role. The government's got a role. Not only do you have a role to play, which you're playing in such fine fashion, but the government has a role to play as well. We've got a significant responsibility to deal with this emergency in a strong and bold way. And we are doing so. He's telling us to re-engage in the economy. Yeah, well, yes. Okay. Uh, but because also, neocon and, it, well, you know, go out and consume. Right. Because, yeah, okay. Because, you know, that way we cannot raise taxes to pay for an unending war. Yeah. But also, it was a reduction of our civic virtue, conflating it with commercial enterprise. Uh, he continues, yeah. quote, we're also a nation that is adjusting to a new type of war. This isn't a conventional war that we're waging. Ours is a campaign that will have to reflect on that will have to reflect the new enemy. There's no longer islands to conquer or beachheads to storm. We face a brand of evil, the likes of which we haven't seen in a long time in the world. These are people who strike and hide people who know no borders, people who are people who depend on others. Uh, He interrupted himself there. And make no mistake about it, the new war is not only against the evildoers themselves, the new war is against those who harbor them and finance them and feed them. We will need patience and determination in order to succeed. We must understand that sometimes we will see our resources deployed and sometimes we won't. But we will use every resource at our disposal. End quote. Okay. So. Yeah. The new, the phrase, the new war. Yep. Is remarkably ominous. Like, I'm, I'm trying to think, I'm like, I want to say Orwellian, but I, it'd be I a misuse say, of the term Orwellian. I would say Truman Doctrine. 
quite honestly. Okay. This is a huge shift in the old way that we did things. Yeah. And and we have to wipe it out everywhere. I mean, it's oh, got yeah. that no, same yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, Yeah, no, it, it, has, it definitely has the same overreach. Yeah. I'm just talking about the verbiage, the new war. Yes. There, there is something very mm-hmm. uh, 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 dystopian, like like young young adult dystopian novel. Yes. Uh, you know, or or you know, Orwell. It's it's the kind of phrase that you know you you would expect to hear in that kind of work. Mm-hmm. You know, we are fighting the new war, or uh, um. Oh damn it! Watchmen. Uh, 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 Arthur to... Miller. No. Uh, nice. <laughs> no. Um, I'm blanking. But you know, it, it's. Are you talking the, the character or the author? The author. Um, oh. Um, uh, Harvey Schiller. No. No. Harry Shearer. No. Michael McKeon. Anyway. Nancy McKeon. No. Rue McClanahan. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's the kind of the, you know it, it's the kind of rhetoric you'd expect to hear from the Norse Fire Party yes. and V for Vendetta. Yeah, it is like you know I I hear you reading that quote, and there's mm-hmm. a part of me that looks back on my own reaction to those things mm-hmm. at the time as they were happening, and I'm like, uh-huh. I kind of want to go back and grab 2001 Me by the Lapels. And be like, okay, look. <laughs> I have, yeah. For fuck's sake. I'm from the he's future. using a phrase yes. like the new war. Yeah, don't like, fall for it. Don't, no. Yeah. Like, no. So I have two little stories. About okay. That. One, a very good dear friend of mine, still a very good dear friend of mine, said, thank goodness he's in office and not Al Gore. And my comment was, would they even have a different cabinet? <laughs> Which I think I'm right, but also Al Gore might have like I don't know paid attention to the presidential daily brief, yeah, um, and and actually listened to the intelligence instead of manufacturing yeah. it. Uh, so that's one story. Well, okay, we wouldn't have wound up going to war in Iraq, right, with Gore, right, because yeah. the personal motivations involved in all of that wouldn't have been there. Yeah, yeah, and would they have had a different cabinet? Well, it wouldn't have involved Rumsfeld. Okay, it wouldn't fair. have involved Cheney. That's true. Those two I mean, things are true. A whole lot of the other ones, yeah, okay, yeah. interchange. I mean, it might have been different people, but the ideology would have been interchangeable. Exactly. A lot of them. Yeah. But Rumsfeld and Cheney would not have been. You there. have a very good point there. Yeah. Um. And here's the thing: mm-hmm. at the time, mm-hmm. that statement. Yeah. I'm glad it's him and not Gore. Yeah. I heard that too. Yeah, they're seventy five percent of America from loved it. my from my mm-hmm. you know, I really hate to say this, but mm-hmm. girlfriend at the time who went on to become my abusive ex wife, but mm-hmm. that's neither here nor there. But I mean that was that was a common Yeah. Mentality. Everybody was glad that we had Yeehaw as a foreign policy. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I wasn't, but I was woke guy in the middle going, what would have been different? Yeah. So yeah. I can't really say I was, you know. Now, the, the second thing is I was in a, so this would have, if you fast forward three years, or yeah, I think three years, um, I was in uh, a, a grad level course, and we were having a discussion about the war and things like that. Yeah. And the professor was like, no, they manufactured all of the evidence. And I was like, no, they were going and I was, you know, very much woke guy in the middle. 
Um, and I was like, no, look, everything that they're doing is not the right way, but they were doing it in good faith. And he's like, nothing about this is good faith. And he's an historian, so he's looking at the sources and all this. And I was yeah. like, and yeah, I was totally wrong. And he was totally right, which I figured out shortly thereafter. Um, yeah. But yeah. So, so you've got this quote. And, yeah. and it's telling us that our way of getting involved is to accept what's happening and to buy shit. Now, Boston University historian Andrew, Andrew uh, Bakovich in 2009 made a convincing case. This is after the Bush presidency is over. That it was a part of a broader pattern of encouraging financial irresponsibility. Okay. Quote, Bush seemed to have calculated cynically but correctly... Now, first off, I'm going to break that quote right there. Uh, Bush seemed to have calculated is a really weird phrase. Um, But, okay, so Bush seemed to have calculated, cynically but correctly, that prolonging the credit-fueled consumer binge could help keep complaints about his performance as commander-in-chief from becoming more than a nuisance. Okay. So keep, keep everybody spending money. Keep yep. keep the keep the economy keep, keep in the a bubble growing. Flow, yep. Keep the yeah, and nobody'll have the attention span or the bandwidth to mm-hmm. actually pay close enough attention to to point out that the emperor has no clothes. Exactly. Okay. Now Bush seemed to agree, because here's more of his speech from September twenty seventh, two thousand one. Quote And we must stand against terror by going back to work. Everybody here who showed up for work at this important industry is, he gave a speech in middle America, I think yeah. it was Ohio, uh, is making a clear statement that terrorism will not stand, that the evildoers will not be able to terrorize America and our workforce and our people, end quote. Evildoers. Evildoers. But look at how he's focused on y'all need to work. You do the work. Well, okay. Yeah. Like now in retrospect, yep. we're two years into a pandemic. Uh huh. And everybody, not not, like literally everybody Mm -hmm. on that side of the aisle, and then a significant number of quislings within within the opposition. Uh huh. To that side, Uh are are have been beating the same drum since two months into the first lockdown. Yep. You know, oh my God. Oh God, the economy. The economy. Everybody, my God. You know, the thing we need to do for you know our civic duty is to go back and be productive citizens mm-hmm. like okay no like stop yeah that's stop it's a big Just deal fucking stop yeah. like here's the deal at this table mm-hmm. i am the capitalist <laughs> right yep like and and i i freely will say no no yeah i i i, I think Capitalism needs to be like have the fuck regulated out of yes. it. Yes. And you yes. know, tax structures need to be right a thing. But like, you know, I'm I'm always the one to say, okay, look, that's late stage capitalism. <laughs> like, let's not go too hard against Adam Smith, like right out the gate. Uh, but but here's the deal. Mm-hmm. Again, like, no, fuck that. People right. are dying. In in the wake of September eleventh, the argument could have maybe been made. Mm-hmm. That okay, it was it was a terrorist attack. Right. We need to not let ourselves become shell shocked and you know cocoon completely and shut everything down. Right. Like okay, I get that, but to beat the drum that hard. Well, you know, during about World... go out and you know max out the credit cards. Right. You know, go to Disneyland, go here, go there. Yep. Like, 
Well, and <sighs> and if you go back to World War One, World War Two, they were encouraging people to buy bonds, put more money into the government so we can buy more shit to blow up in other places because that will actually help the war effort. This help the war effort isn't about raise more revenue because that's what that was. Yeah, that was we we don't no, want to tax you. Were, we we, we yeah. need we need you to donate. Yeah, we're holding a bake sale to buy a bomber. Right, because because we don't want to tax you because we don't want the economy grind to a halt. We know yeah. that you need to do this, but hey, if you got an extra ten bucks at the end of the month, please get this thing. Yeah, you know. But here, none of that because he did tax cuts. Well, because here's the thing, because somewhere along the way, mm-hmm. the idea that the American people should have to sacrifice for anything. Well, that went away when the draft went, went away. Out, yes, went out the window. Yes. And and because they used it wrongly. Yeah, well, yes, That's why. I'm not. Yeah, yeah. no, it. In the case of in the case of the draft, I'm not I'm not going to argue against it, and I'm certainly not going to say that we as a people should have had to sacrifice for Bush's personal crusade in Iraq. Right. But here's the thing: if the only option had been okay, I'm going to have to raise taxes on everybody in order to go pursue my personal campaign of vengeance against Saddam Hussein for trying to assassinate my father. Right. Like if if that had been the narrative. There would have been more people going, whoa, okay, hold on, time out. Yeah. You know, because self-interest would have motivated a lot more people to think more critically Mm -hmm. about it. And this idea that, well, you know, as long as we don't raise taxes on on people. Right. We can get away with whatever the fuck we want to do because we can control the narrative. Mm -hmm. Is, has just completely destroyed. Yes. And I think I think it is it is partly subconscious, and I think it is partly cynical and very conscious. I think Cheney and and Rumsfeld, mm-hmm. like a hundred percent, were actively aware of it that it was corrosive to the American people. I think it, taking ownership, yeah, of what was being done. Oh yeah, by the military in in foreign parts. Keep them spending. Yeah. Keep them, keep them consuming, and and then you can keep scaring them. Make well, make sure, make sure the party never stops. Right. So now, they don't actually have to feel any sting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now this was September twenty seventh, yeah, two thousand one. He's on this shit. Now, meanwhile, MTV chose not to play new music videos. Films were tanking at the box office. Even brilliant masterpieces like Glitter. <laughs> <laughs> a, f- okay. a few weeks prior to this speech conan yeah. o'brien said quote i have no idea what we're what we've how to do what we've been doing david letterman was quoted as saying i wasn't sure if i should be doing a television show howard stern said i wish i was in the military so i could go kill people i wish we could level six countries but if i'm actually looking at iconic bellwether mainstream media consumption side of things I looked to Saturday Night Live. It was in New York. On September 29th, two days after Bush's speech, then-Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who was actually stepping up and doing things that weren't batshit for maybe the one time in his life, appeared with several firefighters, police officers, and Port Authority agents. He talked about how tough New York was, and then Paul Simon played the boxer under an American flag. Afterward, Lorne Michaels asked, Can we be funny? And the show went on. 
And I, I, yeah. I do, I do credit to the writers. Yep. Giuliani's response was, why start now? And his pause was perfect. Yeah. I mean, that was well done, well delivered. But, you know, really they weren't funny and I get it. I get why. I mean, the comedians were really uncomfortable and they were still stunned. Yeah. SNL. It was was less than three weeks after the event. Mm -hmm. Literally everybody was shell-shocked. Yeah. Uh, SNL did bring back its old hits, Celebrity Jeopardy, for instance. Uh, but they also likely could still smell the after effects of 9-11. And I mean that literally, as it had just happened, like you said, three weeks yeah. earlier. How do you perform at comedy when tragedy is literally hanging in the air? Uh, World Trade Center dust was hovering around the firefighters' jackets. Reese Witherspoon, originally there to plug Legally Blonde, was instead the expected voice of healing somehow. Uh, beautiful as she is, and, and a fantastic actress, and a wonderful voice that she has, odd casting for that yeah and daryl hammond reprised his blackface of jesse jackson appealing to the taliban leaders to meet wow (laughs) now hugo or not hugo hugh fink of snl stated that when it came to that particular episode's cold open he said quote i remember going wow this is not the message i was expecting a saturday night live to be sending this is flag waving this is very patriotic but there's absolutely no edge and it's not funny it's just dead serious He goes on, it's how I feel about Super Bowl halftime shows or the preamble to the Super Bowl, Fink added. It's like they're going to bring out the flag. They're going to bring out kids from a Christian group. They'll just throw every possible symbol that represents knee-jerk, rah-rah America. And I feel that's what the cold open did. In later episode in October, Will Ferrell switched his portrayal of George W. Bush from a moronic party boy to a dumb John Wayne Avenger. And there's a difference there. He defanged any real critique of the man. Make no mistake, we're coming for you, Bin Laden. I'm going to make you my own personal Where's Waldo. And unlike those frustrating Waldo books, I'm going to find you. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but maybe tomorrow. So he's kind of this dumb avenging angel. Yeah. Which, no more criticisms of him. Indeed. Now, Tracy Morgan whom I love, he is the man who who is capable of saying the word Episcopal the funniest way anybody has ever said it. <laughs> okay. But Tracy Morgan also came on to Weekend Update during that same episode that, uh, that happened in October, the one where uh, yeah. the new George W. Bush uh, depiction, yeah. to, quote, set the record straight as he'd become a fan of racial profiling. Having a black man, specifically a black man in New York, caping for racial profiling is a special kind of American cognitive dissonance. Yes. Here's what he said. I know in the past I've popped off a lot of jokes about the police and how they get down. And I'll be driving in my lavender colored Jaguar with the hip hop blaring and they pulled me over for no reason. And I would be pissed off, you know. But never again. I'm here to set the record straight. I like racial profiling. I got new eyes. Racial profiling is a good thing. Officers, I support you. And I don't care if the dude is white, black, green, blue, whatever. If something doesn't look right, shake him down. Now, I'm not saying you beat his ass or nothing like that, but just shake him down. See what's happening. You working at the airport and someone looks suspicious? Shake him down. He got a long ZZ Top beard? Shake him down. You see a pasty-faced white dude with a Jesus Saves backpack wrapped in the Confederate flag? Shake him down. The dude got his head all wrapped up and he ain't Erica Badu? Shake him down. Hey, that probably ain't even guilty, but shake him down. They'll get over it. Look at me. I have. 
So law enforcement officers, Tracy Morgan completely understands racial profiling. I support you. And remember, if a guy's got a little bit of weed in his car and he ain't hurting nobody, don't make me throw it out. Now, obviously, having him keep going with the shake him down thing, on one level, yeah. it's very funny. Yeah. On another level, what the actual fuck? Yeah. Now, a few weeks later, Drew Barrymore hosted, and there was an anthrax scare at the building. Yeah, I remember that. It was a scary, overly real, very weird time. And starting largely in that year, Jimmy Fallon starts breaking character more and more often. It becomes a bigger and bigger part of the show. Now, the first time that Jimmy Fallon broke character was during the Cowbell sketch in 2000. And for a while, other cast members tried to get him to break it as an inside joke. Okay. Keep that in mind. But after 9-11, it becomes a regular feature peaking in 2004 and i think this breaking character i think that this fourth wall break was something that we clearly wanted and needed as a society because it's somebody looking at the camera and winking at us letting us know yeah this shit is too much let's take a breath okay so also in 2002 we see the obviously rising wave of reality tv which isn't um well yeah never has been yeah and to be sure reality tv has existed since queen for a day debuted in 1945 and i might need to do another marathon on how reality tv has changed through the years but please no (laughs) but with the success of fishbowl shows like the real world and big brother and competition shows like survivor reality tv was gaining steam as a genre american idol hit the airwaves in 2002 Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna argue because mm-hmm. I, I think I think I kind of know where you're going okay. with this, but I'm I'm going to preemptively mm-hmm. throw in an argument that there's also the fact that during the same time period, mm-hmm. production companies uh, and the networks mm-hmm. are all feeling the squeeze of the at that point very rapidly expanding uh, cable market. Yeah. And reality TV mm-hmm. is really cheap to produce. Yes, it is. And it is designed in a way and done in a way mm-hmm. that makes it very, very, very hard mm-hmm. to pull your eyeballs away from the screen for because it because it for for advertising purposes. Okay. And and because it hits irrespective of the zit guys mm-hmm. just because we are monkeys and we live in troops mm-hmm. it hits all of our subconscious buttons yes now i'm not saying that to completely discount no that the force of the zit guys that doesn't discount it but at I, all but i'm but i'm going to say i think mm-hmm. i think the zit guys may have been an accelerant I think that what was going on at the time made it fertile ground for reality TV to shift in this new direction. Like I said, there were competition shows, including American Idol, which you start to see the judges kind of breaking, kind of breaking the fourth wall to tell the audience, this guy's terrible and that gal's awful. Yeah. Still, that's a big production. It's a big competition. And then the game changer comes, The Simple Life. Okay. Fox. Of course. Yeah, of, of course, yeah, Fox. Duh. Yeah. I Quote, mean, wanted shock. to see stilettos in cow shit. <laughs> that was <laughs> literally the guy who that's... greenlit Paris Hilton. 
He said that. Wow. Okay. And fresh off her sex tape being leaked by her ex-boyfriend and never having been paid for the damages that she sought and won in court, she then instead capitalized on the fame that it brought instead and embarked on a four-year journey with her then-friend Nicole Ritchie. I would point out Paris Hilton won an award in court for damages that were never paid to her. She managed to capitalize on it in other ways. Uh, and people have their own pet theories as to whether or not, you know, she did this thing on purpose or whatnot. Well, of course, you made a sex tape on purpose, but whether or not you made it for mass consumption of other people is a different thing. Oh, yeah. No, I'm I'm this fully, wasn't found footage. Yeah, no, I'm I'm fully on on board with any yeah. theory that says, no, no, she she knew that the recording was happening. But the mm-hmm. idea that she then uh, was orchestrated. Okay yeah. With it being distributed is a load of horse shit. Yeah, it's it's, it's it was no, one of those. It, it was, it's going to get distributed. How do I make this work for me instead of shame me? Yeah, after yeah. after the fact. Okay, yeah. what what do I do? What do I do as damage control? Yeah, and, or how can I spin a loss into a win? Yeah, because this is a, a gross violation of my privacy. Yeah. So now Hilton and Richie were socialite heiresses, uh, and the the show with the two of them lasted for two years. Then yeah. they stopped being friends after the second season. Uh, but they were easy for us to poke fun at, and they would travel around the country for half an hour at a time, reacting to low paying jobs in Middle America, struggling in manual labor, uh, and working in underpaid jobs for which they were unqualified. This had two impacts. First, it showed the, quote, real America, popularizing the cracker barrel, commonsensical, authentic, slightly grumpy, bewildered by stupid elites, denizens of the places that grow our food. Yes. And they were the foils to the second impact. Two thoroughly unrealistic by any standards incompetence, whose exploits were a wink and a nod to the audience the whole way through. The whole thing was a fourth wall break, masquerading as a show. And this becomes the formula for many to follow. Laguna Beach, Real Housewives of, Duck Dynasty. Every channel also had its own version of, look at these goddamn people. Let's pause a minute and all agree that this is too much. So now this entire genre is exploding of, look how, let's let's all stop for a minute at what we're looking at and acknowledge to each other the shit's batshit and then go back to looking at it. Now, what is the only thing that could possibly take us out of that self-induced, repeated auditory Soma holiday? Wow, that's a phrase. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because, again, the, the, the Wilhelm scream is exactly doing that at that time. All this action, all this action, okay. all this action. Ah! Okay. Oh, right. And then we move on. Okay. And you have that throughout. It's a release valve. Yes. Okay. It's a take a breath. Okay, back to the show. Not even a commercial break. Just yeah, a, just a just a moment it, it's, of. Okay. And you'll have this happen uh, as you and your your boy are watching a film. You'll invariably have him watch something that he's not quite ready for because kids are weird yeah. that way. Yeah. Um. And you'll turn to him. It's okay. That's not actually happening. Oh yeah. No, That's we've, we've what already... the Wilhelm scream is. Okay. 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 So the only thing that could take us out of that, a circus peanut Hitler wannabe who governed by unreality. Okay. Actually electing Ubu Roy. Yes. Now recall the reaction of everyone after Trump got elected. Self-flogging. Much of it deserved, but plenty that was an effort to ignore the bigger elephant in the room 
of how comedy got Trump elected. The same thing that allowed us all of our fourth wall breaks after 9-11, that that same need for whimsy during the unending war under Obama and that unending need for whimsy during the black guy being president, how dare he, um, it's now being excoriated as what led us to this guy as president. Now, I reached out to Emily Nussbaum, who wrote on January 15th, 2017. She gave me permission. We had a lovely talk on Twitter. Um, She wrote in The New Yorker that it was exactly jokes and humor that enabled a graying of reality, which led to a tyrant getting elected. Like I said, she gave me permission, which also she pointed out to me that's not necessary since it was published in the public sphere. And uh, I said, yeah, but I still like to do these things. So, So I'm quoting her article as I need. Okay. Now, she also said she didn't mind giving us a listen when this is done. So, Ms. Newsbomb, hello. Thank you. Yep. Uh, she did say, quote, I'd only object to listening if it were the actual Wilhelm scream for an hour. <laughs> now, after <laughs> she hears this, become, yeah, she, she might, might change have her mind. a different yeah. opinion. Yeah. Now, Newsbomb writes that she. Sorry about the swears, Ms. <laughs> Newsbomb. I, I apologize. She writes that she, quote, had the impression that jokes like Woody Guthrie's guitar were a machine that killed fascists. Comedy might be cruel or stupid, yet in aggregate, it was a rebel stance. Nazis were humorless. So humor was a way of breaking the fourth wall of reality itself. It's back to me talking. Now. Okay. Uh, but, and I think this is true for the humor in the Bush-Obama years, and I'm combining them now. Okay. Quote, by, na- by 2016, the wheel had spun hard the other way. Now it was the neo-fascist strongman who held the microphone and an army of anonymous dirty joke dispensers who helped put him in office. Online, jokes were powerful accelerants for lies. A tweet was the size of a one-liner. A, quote, dank meme carried farther than any op-ed. And the distinction between a Nazi and someone pretending to be a Nazi for the lulls had become a blur. Ads looked like the news, and so did propaganda, and so did actual comedy on both the right and the left, and every combination of the four was labeled, quote, satire. Now, Trump got elected at a time when reality was destabilized. Remember, they hate us for our freedoms. Yeah. That was, I can't say that word, memetic. 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 Uh, What's worse, he probably did so because the guy couldn't take a joke. Right. You'll recall that the 2011 White House Correspondents' Dinner where Obama went after him for his birtherism. And Obama did it in a classy-ass way. Like a well-performed set. Yeah, well, okay. Here's the thing. Okay. And this was was one of... of, uh, In our last episode, Mm -hmm. you you went after uh, Anakin Skywalker for droid theft. Rightly so. Yeah, yes. And 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 in a similar way, mm-hmm. over the course of the the uh, Trump administration, mm-hmm. um, I repeatedly, on several occasions, went after him for his utter humorlessness, mm-hmm. like his absolute inability to make a joke that was not punching, punching, yeah, somebody, yep, like almost. Well, always down. Yeah. Um, but but like the man has no sense of fun. That's true. He's joyless. Like he is utterly joyless. Yeah. And and there's there's no there there. Yep. Obama mm-hmm. 
like I mean we can we for can disagree his with faults. his policies for all of his flaws. The man had a sense of comic timing. Yep. He had a sen- he had a genuine sense of humor. Yes, he did. And along with that, I and and more to the point, this this is this is what really wound up getting me mm-hmm. was there is an element of basic humanity. I was going to say humility too. Well, well yeah, yeah, but but you're absolutely but, right. But there there is an element of humanity. Yes. That's involved in being able to tell a joke mm-hmm. and being able to take a joke. Yeah. Bush both of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you we can, they we can also, disagree. They also could do that. They could. Yes. We can we I mean, like you can you can argue rightly mm-hmm. against any number of policy decisions they made, like all of them. But I, they uh, do have case. humanity. But they had humanity. They weren't joyless fucking robots. Huge manatee. There you go. Yeah. You know, and 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 you're right. You're 100% I mean, right. So it so it is it is so remarkable to me mm-hmm. that I hear that argument about mm-hmm. about humor getting him elected or jokes getting him elected. I don't even want to call it humor because mm-hmm. the jokes from that side weren't right. jokes. They're all punching. Yeah. But you know, it's it's not but, just jokes. It is humor, and it's a long, long game. Yeah. And here's why. So I need to rewind a bit to address reductio ad Hitlerum. Okay. Now with Bush, people okay. began comparing him to Hitler. It's true. Yeah. Largely, it was from anti-war activists, civil libertarians, and historians due largely and specifically to the Patriot Act, yeah. as well as the invading of two countries with flimsy excuses that enough of the country bought. Yes. Now, after 2009, people, largely funded and enabled by the Koch brothers, had been making comparisons of Obama to Hitler because he pushed for universal health care. And then people said, see, you did it to our guy, now we get to do it to your guy. And it really took the seriousness out of the comparisons to Hitler out of the culture. The, yeah. The thing was, these two things weren't equal. If, if it, was, it was funnier if they were. Quite honestly, as yeah. South Park had told us glibly, they were, in fact, the same. Because in 2004, South Park ran the episode Douche and Turd. South Park is a smarter version of what The Simple Life is in many respects. It's one big nod to the fourth wall. Look at how oh. fucking ridiculous these people are. And the mirror is what yeah. we're holding up. Yeah. Uh, but it's the same basic sentiment. And since they attacked everyone equally, it was considered super smart. And the thing is, it creates a false and convenient narrative of equivalence. The Douche and Turd episode does this in October of 2004. Yes, John Kerry was an aristocrat from a wealthy family who went to Yale. And yes, George Bush was, on paper, almost exactly that same description. But when you don't reach below the shallow surface, you miss a lot of context that mattered. John Kerry fought in a war and later decided it was a mistake. George W. Bush avoided a war and later decided we should have another one. John Kerry and the Democrats had a platform for making sure not to privatize Social Security. They wanted to reduce the lag time for naturalization, supported the DREAM Act, wanted a passage citizenship, funding for drug rehab, got an F rating by the NRA, was staunchly pro-choice, was threatened with excommunication as well as the denial of communion as a Catholic, uh, co-sponsored, yeah. in fact, 53% of Catholics voted for Bush. 
co-sponsored the hate crimes prevention bill, fought yeah. against housing and other discrimination based on sexuality, introduced the vaccines for New Millennium Act, supported same-sex marriage, voted against the Defense of Marriage Act and the fa- the Federal Marriage Act or Federal Marriage Amendment, was strong on the environment, and he also supported the war that Bush started. Yeah. He was rich as fuck, and he had been in politics since the 70s. Bush and the Republicans agreed mostly with pro-life groups, wanted public monies to go to private and religious groups to do community aid, and wanted to make his tax cuts permanent, repealed air pollution regulations, rejected the Kyoto Protocol, endorsed the federal marriage uh, amendment, courted the idea of using Chile as a model for Social Security, which is privatization. There really wasn't much to his platform in 2004 besides don't change horses midstream and that guy was a coward. And still, he was rich as fuck and part of the political dynasty family. So, yeah. on the surface, turd and douche. Basically the same. But, and I cannot emphasize this enough, South Park is a cartoon that has to paint with a broad brush to save time. And this well, episode's analysis of two very different candidates was very effective in equalizing them completely. I'm, I'm also going to mm-hmm. throw in here mm-hmm. that the two masterminds behind it... Mm-hmm are textbook examples textbook fucking examples of what you complain about all the time Mm -hmm. which is well you know obviously the truth has to be somewhere in the middle right everybody's you know they're all out so you know i'm smarter because i'm picking on everybody right like no fuck you right you know if if you were a genuine satirist Mm -hmm. like if you genuinely if you weren't just being an edgelord douchebag, mm-hmm. I, I have I have major problems with South Park mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. But but the biggest one is if you weren't just busy jacking off to how smart you fucking think you are, mm-hmm. you wouldn't rely on lazy ass writing like that. See, and I think that's genuine my... satirists actually do rely ultimately on lazy writing. Eventually, okay, they. And and South Park, they take down plenty of groups that take they take down people who take themselves too seriously. But the problem is they equalize two different sides, thinking that it it's 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 what I talk about when I talk about the grammar of it, right? Yeah. So this equalization that they do carried a lot of weight. Twelve years later, people were making the same poorly wrought argument and analysis of Clinton and Trump. Newsbomb points out, quote. As season 20 opened, the show was doing precisely what a year earlier it had warned against, treating Garrison's Trump as an absurd borderline sympathetic joke figure and portraying him as him and Clinton as ide- identical dangers, a choice between a, quote, giant douche and a, quote, turd sandwich. So now people are, and I have mm. plenty of friends who are like, oh, neither is worth it. And it's like, on the one side, a guy wants to fuck his daughter. <laughs> on the other side, you have the most qualified woman to have ever walked the earth to become president. One of the most qualified people ever to become yes. president. Like, and and I would point out the resume compared. Like, yeah, if it were a job interview for any position else anywhere in our country, he he would get the job. You're right because well, he's a man. Okay, if you were <sighs> if you were actually looking at qualifications, yeah. yes. Okay. Yeah. Poorly. Poor. I didn't no, put but, that together right. But yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah. But here, here's the thing: you can absolutely hate Hillary Clinton. You can absolutely think that she is a terrible, terrible human being, 
And you still cannot argue that she is not more qualified than Trump was. Oh, yeah. Now, here's what I'm talking about with the grammar. That they were grammatically the same. A turd sandwich and a giant douche. Yeah. Clinton and Trump, because you said that they were the same in a contrived sentence that the jokes writer used doesn't mean that they were factually, morally, ethically the same. And the sublimation of everything else into that grammatical similarity is a very dangerous one. The very thing that had been helpful to cope with the hyper-unreal reality of Bush-Obama years was now coming back to enable Trump's ascent to power. And in so doing, it helped render itself obsolete. There's no need to look at the fourth wall as the unreality and the reality are totally fused now. In 2007, Newsbaum said, quote, or I'm sorry, 2017, Newsbaum said, quote, it could be surprisingly hard to look at the phenomenon of Trump directly. The words bent, the meaning dissolved. You needed a filter. Television was Trump's natural medium, and television had stories that reflected Trump or predicted his rise, warped lenses that made it easier to understand the change as it was happening. End quote. We were now the reality show. So, back to reductio ad Hitlerum. Comparisons of Obama to Hitler sharply rose from the right due to that grammatical similarity sublimation. As such, a counter to that was, as was the norm in the halcyon days of the early 2010s, mocking humor. On Tumblr, the phrase literal Hitler came into fashion. It was initially used to mock those who compared Hitler to Obama so thinly. Yeah. But as Nussbaum points out, quote, it morphed, as jokes did so quickly last year, into a weapon that might be used to mock any comparison to Hitler, even when a guy with a serious Hitler vibe ran for president, even when the people using the phrase were cavorting with Nazis. Literal Hitler was one of a thousand such memes flowing from anonymous internet boards that were founded a decade ago, a free universe that was crude and funny and juvenile and anarchic by design, a teenage boy safe space. Literal Hitler started as a Wilhelm scream. Get a load of this okay. shit. Yeah. But then it ceased to have the impact that it started with. It got overused and turned into a dark parody of itself finally enabling a literal, as in he and his wife used the same rhetoric, his staff used the same tactics, and his supporters sported shirts in praise of the fucking Holocaust when they stormed the Capitol, Hitler. And after it's done, it's a dead brand. It's a meme that's lost its mojo. It's no longer a rebel yell poking fun at the power structure. It's a tool of those in power to take the wind out of the sails of those who would object. The joke protected the non-joke, Nussbaum said. She continues, Like Trump's statements, their quasi-comical memeing and name-calling was so destabilizing, flipping between serious and silly, that it warped the boundaries of discourse. We memed a president into existence, Chuck Johnson, a troll who had been banned from Twitter, bragged after the election. <laughs> These days, he's reportedly consulting on appointments in the White House, Nussbaum said in 2017. Yep. That same president has now been banned from Twitter. Yep. Trump succeeded. Should in have happened a long time. Oh, God, yeah. And Trump succeeded in destabilizing reality to the point where a fourth wall break isn't the transgressive catharsis we once used it for. No. So I, that was a lot. I have a conclusion here, but I wanted to give you a chance to address, rebut, or just say, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Okay. I'll have, I'll have a response. 
after you okay. tie everything together. So once our collective culture's absurdity surpassed our desire for unreality, the Wilhelm scream died off very quickly. The Force Awakens used it, but that was in 2015. And after that, it has not been heard in a Star Wars film since. And I know this seems silly, but really look at the data. 69, yeah, until it hit big. Ben Burt and his crew turned it into an inside joke amongst themselves. And then it takes off after the fall of 2001, growing in a crescendo of use and popularity. A lot more people are starting to use it and see the value of it. And it grows from 2001 all the way to 2015 as a way of just taking you out of the action for a second. And then it stops almost entirely, even from the very franchise that popularized it by 2016. It's as if millions of voices suddenly cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced. Oh, nicely done. Thank you. So, Mm. that's the history and the impact of the Wilhelm scream. Okay. I find it interesting Mm -hmm. that this is a case where I think the Wilhelm scream itself Mm -hmm. is a is is one of the few times where I can look at one of these things that we've that we've talked about in the zitgeist Mm -hmm. and I can very confidently say I think in and of itself Mm -hmm. the Wilhelm scream is more a reflection of the zitgeist than a driver within it yes because oh, a hundred percent is because because a whole lot of the time we're, we we talk about things that are that that have mm-hmm. some kind of a positive feedback loop, right? Where right where, it's, or it's prismatic, know, even. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah where, no, where, this is one hundred percent mirror, yeah, yeah, and and you know, along with the Wilhelm scream, we have you know the the other. Uh, you know, w- winks and nods mm-hmm. going on as as a as a subtext in so much of everything that we're that we're watching, and and you know, talking about uh, the uh, uh, South Park, yeah, that I remember the very beginnings of South Park, like the very first short film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus versus Santa. Yeah. Yeah. Back in 90, I want to say it was 96. 95, 96. Yeah. 95, 96. Yeah. But South Park didn't take off. It didn't become a juggernaut. Right. Until after 2001. I would say it was the election. So I know that it hit the, the airwaves um, with Carton Receives an Anal Probe in 1997 <laughs> or 98. Okay, yeah. Um, and then from there, everybody, it caught fire for everybody. It wasn't yeah. just us, you know, cool yeah. kids. Yeah. Uh, and then the election of 2000, that episode where they were electing somebody to be president oh, of kindergarten, right. I think launched them into the stratosphere. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But I think they're, they, they got a hold of their position. Mm-hmm. And and ran with it. Yeah, I think largely because of the forces that you're talking about, mm-hmm. because of you know the the oh hey you know look how ridiculous this all is. We're so over the top mm-hmm. because of where the zitgeist was and needing that kind of thing as our entertainment. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I had not considered that connection until now. And 300 and something films over the course of, you know, 15 years. Yeah. Is really telling. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then everything about that, that need to have a moment to, to see the unreality or, mm-hmm. or to see the ridiculousness leading to the most ridiculous individual you can possibly think of winning the Republican nomination mm-hmm. for president. Like I, I remember the level of incredulousness from everybody who was not a Trumpite at the beginning of that whole campaign cycle. Yeah. Like, who is this motherfucker? Oh, all my friends. Yeah. Uh, What the hell? A lot of people I know were like, oh my God, this is so, this is such a gift. This is such a gift. Oh yeah, this is the death knell of the Republican Party. Right. And, and. And it is. Because now it's the Trump party. Yeah, well, yeah. But but it's yeah. it <laughs> yeah. It didn't go the way that people expect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And well, and you know, I will say Parker and Stone even said, uh, we were still busy making the jokes when this guy ended up was swear swearing in as president. We were like, guys, all of us expected Hillary to win. Yeah. All of our jokes were premised on the fact that, oh, she's gonna win this. Yeah. Yeah. And so they I, I yeah. dare say they had a lot of regret about what they did. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And and what I'm what I'm also going to say is the the way that the 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 viral mimetic manner in which mm-hmm. Trumpism wound up dominating the Republican Party mm-hmm. is co- almost a reflection of the same kind of thing that it was, oh my god, look how ridiculous this is. Republicans, mainstream Republicans mm-hmm. at the beginning of the election cycle. Oh, yeah. We're like, oh, my God, who is this idiot? And I think it's worth noting that up until the convention, mm-hmm. he never won an outright majority in any of the primaries hmm. that he won. Huh. One. Yeah, yeah, he had the highest plurality. He had had the highest plurality. And his plurality was 30%. Right. You know, if there if it had been a year where it was Donald Trump or you you can pick between Donald Trump or Jeb Bush, we wouldn't be where we are now because it would have been, well, I mean, this guy's a joke. Obviously, right. everybody who's a mainstream country club Republican is not going to vote for this asshole. Right. We're going to vote for Jeb Bush, who's one of our people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, and, and you know, and what we probably would have seen was an electoral defeat by the Republican Party because the people who were really behind Trump would have said, fuck all y'all, I'm staying home. Right. Because they were pissed off at just everybody. Yeah, they would have Cartman. They would have, yeah, completely Cartman. Mm-hmm. And and instead, we elected Cartman. In, instead, Cartman wound up in the fucking White House. Yeah. And um, it it wasn't until the convention mm-hmm. when it became clear that okay, no, look, he's only ever won thirty percent, but those are the most rabid thirty percent you've ever seen. Yes. And like, if you turn him down, you're gonna die. Politically, electorally yeah. speaking, 
you're gone. It was a more extreme version of the bargain that John McCain basically had to strike when he yeah. decided to use Sarah Palin. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, because because again, yep. When when for the last eight years it had been, you know, we're gonna we're gonna up the tone, we're gonna up the gain. Yep. You know, we're gonna super saturate all the colors. Mm-hmm. That's what happens. Your retinas get burnt out, and you can't see anything unless yeah. it's super bright now. So ultimately, you know, the the sound stages were saturated with yeah. the Wilhelm scream, yeah, to the point where it burned itself out. Yeah, it is no longer a a viable thing because we don't live in a world where we need an escape from reality. We have thoroughly detached from it. We are living in an unreality. And I need, actually, here's the deal. I need mm-hmm. an escape from reality where you're not winking at me Yep. to pull me back into reality. Yep. I need, no, no, no. Tell you what, make another Avatar movie. Hmm. Like, like yeah. I want to, I want to put on an Oculus headset and like not be on earth. Yep. Like, <laughs> that's, yeah. <laughs> because, because that's the only way to escape anything. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. Well, there you go. Uh, okay. Um, anything you want to recommend for people to read, or not this time around? Okay. I, I I'm going to recommend people go watch um, Star Wars: A New Hope. Okay. Uh, and turn on the director's commentary because invariably Ben Burt gets interviewed for most okay. of these. Well, yeah. Okay. And listen to what he has to say because it's some pretty cool shit. Okay. There might even be some special features in some of the Blu-rays or whatnot. Talking about the sound of Star Wars. Okay. Which is really neat. My girlfriend and I were watching uh, the sound of Star Wars on on the YouTubes. Nice. Because uh, I wanted her to see, like, here's how Chewbacca's roar came. Here's what they yeah, use. Because yeah. I already know all this shit. Yeah. You know, she's a musician, so she's going to appreciate sound. Yeah. And, you know, she was pretty wowed by it. So Cool. Yeah. I'm going to recommend that. Where can people find you on the social medias? I can be found on the social medias at E.H. Blaylock on Twitter. I can be found also at E.H. Blaylock on Instagram and Mr. Blaylock on the TikToks. And if you're looking for the two of us collectively, uh, you can shout at us about anything we got wrong on Geek History Time on uh, Twitter and uh, also at www.geekhistoryoftime on the on the interwebs mm-hmm. through your browser. Uh, and of course, you found us here either through the uh, Apple mm-hmm. uh, podcast app or through uh, Spotify or Stitcher. So uh, wherever you found us there, please subscribe and give us the five stars you know we deserve. Mm-hmm. And where can you be found? Uh, you could find me at Duh Harmony on the Twitter and on the Insta. Uh, you can also find me the first Tuesday of every month doing uh, pun slinging digitally on uh, twitch.tv forward slash capital puns. And if you are in the town in which I reside, and feel free to hit me up on one of those things and ask, but you could find me on January 14th, February 4th, March 4th, or April 1st uh, doing puns live in person you have to be vaccinated yeah uh, so at luna's so well uh for a geek history of time i'm damien harmony and i'm ed blaylock and until next time ah!